Uh, and we'll be reading down through uh, to verse 25. And Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice uh, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed... Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for they had, he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, uh, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Then Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and and spoken the, the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious uh, God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, instruct us from your word today, uh, that you have something here for us, that this word is, is living and active and, and you have spoken and this word now speaks to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just give me the words to say, help us as we look uh, at these verses, prepare our hearts as well uh, for the communion service uh, that will follow. May we just uh, delight in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Some of you I know when you go to the doctor, uh, you don't like tests. 
You don't like when the doctor wants to poke you with needles and pick you and, and prod you. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with taking uh, a test. There's nothing inherently wrong with, with you have some symptoms and trying to figure out what, what they are. Some tests that, that doctors run are, are preventative. Uh, a couple years ago, I had to have my cholesterol uh, taken. And they, they did that because they said, well, you're now at the age where we, we should get a baseline for you. Didn't necessarily mean that anything was wrong, it was, but it was good to take uh, the test. Uh, we even have doctors, and now you can see it on commercials and reminders, that, that there are certain exams or self-exams that we should test ourselves, that we should be alert for certain signs or warning signs or symptoms. There's nothing wrong with a test. And I want to I want to approach this passage this morning from the sense of let's all take a test. This is not an exam. I I won't be grading you, uh, but this is sort of a uh, examine your own heart kind of moment. And I want you to look at Simon and, and I want you to see that, okay, here's a guy that that made a profession of faith. Here's a guy that was baptized. He was hanging out with the church and Philip. And yet, for all his appearances, he wasn't a genuine believer. There was something going on in his heart. And I'll, as we work through this, I'll show you why I think he wasn't a genuine believer. Uh, but the point this morning is this. Test yourself. Am I... A believer. And I think it's a great sermon as we prepare uh, to take communion because the scriptures warn us not to take communion in an unworthy manner, not to have unconfessed sins in our life, not to take not only as as not to take don't take communion as a believer if you have sins that you're you're not confessing and dealing with before God, but certainly don't take communion if you are just going through the motions and you don't have a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. So, so Paul writes to the Corinthians, a church uh, that by and large most of the audience is going to be believers, and yet he still says to them, test yourselves. See if you're in the faith. Make sure these things are real to you. Unless, are you worried that you won't pass the test? Test yourself, examine yourself, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Sometimes you'll encounter someone that, that is told they need a certain test and they become indignant. Uh, like the, the person who has been drinking and gets pulled over by the cops and the cop says, well, son, we need to, we need to do a breathalyzer test. And they become angry and they become, no, why are you going to do that? Of course I haven't been drinking. And the reason they become angry is because they know they're going to get caught. See, we need to test ourselves, and there's nothing wrong with saying, test yourself, look at things. Are you certain that you're in the faith? And rather than getting all bristled, we need to say, yeah, this is a command of the Lord. And I think this passage, this this, uh, uh, events around the life of Simon and how he came into the church and seemed to be a believer, I think is a good passage to work through to say, we need to test and see if they're in the Lord. So we're going to have three uh, tests this morning. 
Uh, it's a, a three-part quiz, if you will. Test number one is, did I come to Jesus for the extra benefits? Ask yourself this, why did I come to Jesus? Did I come because I see my sin, because I see my need of a Savior, because I see um, how awful I am and how great Jesus is? Or did I come because someone told me, a whole lot of good things would happen to me if I came to Jesus. There are a whole lot of good things that can come out of knowing Jesus and, and believing in him and things that he can heal, things that he can fix, things that he changes in our lives. But the question is this, was my primary motive come in coming to Jesus because I knew I needed a savior and I saw that he was that? Or was my primary motive to say, there's a whole lot of things that Jesus can do for me. So we start out with this passage, and as we're working through, I just want you to notice the effects of the death of Stephen. First, we have Saul, and we have persecution breaking out. So Saul is introduced here, and he later obviously becomes the Apostle Paul. This is the first time he shows up in the book of Acts, and he starts persecuting the church here. And and you'll notice in verse 1 that, that as persecution, this great persecution breaks out, they are scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. But you'll also notice that as they scatter, that this is the plan of God. Remember, God said, I will make you my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Up until this point, they've largely been in Jerusalem. And then you'll notice it says in verse 1, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then verse 4 and 5, it says, and those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the word of Christ. In the end, in, in the end of our section in verse 25, it says that they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So God had this command. He said, go out. I'm going to make you my witnesses, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. They hadn't done that yet. And God uses the persecution. And as they go, just like each one of us, as we go out into our jobs, into our neighborhoods, going home today, we are put in places where we can share uh, the word of God. And so as they go, as they're scattered, they share the word of God in Judea and Samaria. And so they begin to fulfill uh, the word of God. Uh, the church father, one of the early church people in the uh, 200s, a guy by the name of Tertullian said, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As people were persecuted, the word of God spread. And in and, and later times when when uh, Christians were being martyred, being put to death, their blood being shed, the way that they suffered, the way that they continued to talk about God and Jesus and have their hope in him, even in the most horrific trials. It was like a seed scattering because people saw that and they saw, wow, these guys really do believe this. They're willing to go to death for this. God often uses persecution to spread uh, the church. So I want you to notice as they're spreading here, we get down and Philip begins to perform great miracles as he goes into Samaria, verses 6, 7, and 8. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they had heard him, uh, they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. There's this great 
preaching of the gospel and these miracles are, are testifying to the truth of it and, and crowds are being gathered and, and they are all paying attention to Philip. And then there's this guy, Simon. And Simon had been a guy who was involved with demons and magic and, and the occult. And he had been able to draw a big crowd. People came to him for attention. They thought he was a somebody. Look at verse 9, the great magician Simon. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. We shouldn't be surprised that Simon could be involved in some way in the occult and could do things that were not normal, that were supernatural. Uh, in the book of Exodus, when, when Moses and Aaron show up to the, the uh, Pharaoh, you have uh, them, and, and you'll remember that, that Moses throws down his staff and it becomes a snake. Well, the magicians in, in Pharaoh's court could do the very same thing. It almost like, ha, you turned your staff into a snake, that's fine. They all throw their staffs down and they become snakes. And then Pharaoh can be like, well, we've seen this magic before. This God of yours, Moses, is no big deal. Uh, now, in the, in the biblical account, what happens is Moses' staff slash snake eats the other snakes. It's saying, my God's more powerful than your God. But demons could use magic and people uh, could use that as well. So we shouldn't be surprised. Here's this Simon guy and he's drawing a crowd and people think he's amazing and, and he is a big somebody in this city. Notice that he was getting a lot of attention, verses 10 and 11. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God and that is called great. And they paid attention to him, verse 11. I, I think this is repeated twice um, so that we might understand what is going on here. It had just said uh, in, in verse 6 that they were paying attention with one accord to Philip. And the crowds with one accord paid attention. And then we have this Simon, and it, it says, but they had been paying attention to him. So imagine in your mind, if you will, envision a, a street performer uh, performing, let's just put it in a modern day section, a, a magician performing balloon animals and drawing a crowd on, on the street corner down in, in central York. And then someone else shows up on the other side of the corner and they start doing great things. Maybe they start giving away free candy. And all the kids and all the crowds go from the the clown on the one side, the magician on the one side, and cross over and they start going to the other side. Well, now put this in a spiritual context. Put this in the original setting. Here's this guy doing fake miracles, but they look real. It might be demons, but man, is it impressive. Everybody is amazed by him. They are, wow, have you seen that Simon guy? You know, they all go down to the restaurant afterwards. Wow, can you believe what he did? This guy is amazing. I mean, he is the talk of the town. And then Philip shows up, and Philip is bringing the truth. He's bringing the gospel. He's, he's bringing freedom. Demons are being cast out. 
So that while Simon here is using the power of demons and doing miraculous things, he's not healing people, he's not helping people, he's not bringing them the truth of the gospel. So Simon has not only these miracles, or excuse me, Philip has not only these miracles, but he is the real deal. Setting people free from their sins, from their enslavement to demons, from from the effects of the fall in their in, in illnesses. And everybody starts talking about Philip. And everybody starts believing in Philip. Can you imagine how Simon begins to feel? Can you imagine why he might be intrigued? Wow, I can do miracle one, miracle two, miracle three. But these guys are healing people. And maybe even a bit of selfishness. Wow, look at the big crowds that these people can draw. You'll notice that Simon is initially intrigued and he does make a profession of faith. So we see in verse 12 and 13, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news and the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Let me just pause there for a second. Notice that Philip's ministry focused on the word of God. So Philip wasn't just doing these miracles. Philip wasn't just trying to draw attention to himself. He was proclaiming how good Jesus was. And the signs that he was doing were testifying to the truth that he was speaking. Then in verse 13, even Simon himself believed after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. So Philip doesn't take credit for himself. There's a a Christ-centered focus in what he does. The, The goal and the purpose of his signs and healings was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people out there today that try to convince you that they can do healings. There are a lot of quote-unquote ministries and revivals that happen. And they bring in a a big name. And this big name can allegedly cast out demons or, or cause people to be healed. God can heal people, right? God can do that. We can offer prayers to him and he can do some amazing things. But but there is a difference between someone who's preaching the gospel and then prays and then God does something through that versus someone who makes a big flashy show and says, I have the power and I'm going to lay a hand on you and you are going to get better because I am a man of God. And, and it becomes this I, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me. When it is not Christ-centered, it is not from God. Scripture warns us in the book of Galatians that even if an angel himself comes and preaches a different gospel, let it be a curse. Let him be accursed. And this happens in our day and age where people gather these crowds. They, they have a nice name to their ministry. They use God. They say the name of God. Maybe they even say the name of Jesus. And then they say, and look at the healings that we can do. But they don't preach the true gospel. And we don't have to wonder, are those things real or not, if there's not the true gospel there. Scripture gives us those warnings. 
I want you to also notice how how Simon appeared to be a believer. It says Simon himself even believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and miracles performed. He was amazed. For all intents and purposes, if you had met Simon at this moment, you would say, wow, this guy is a believer. He looked like a believer. He talked like a believer. He acted like a believer. And yet time will show that he isn't a believer. This is very much like the parable of the sower. Remember the parable of the sower, how the seed in in Matthew chapter 13 is scattered out there and seed lands on different soils and, and some of it lands on the rocky ground. And it begins to take root, but then it doesn't go very far. And when the sun comes up, it burns out the, the roots that had begun. Or the seed that, that falls into the weeds that is choked out. Jesus says this, And now what was sown on the rocky ground, this one is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy and yet has no root in himself. And endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. As for what was sown on the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Simon finds Christianity attractive. Simon is amazed by what is going on. He marvels at the miracles, at the power, the amazing things that Philip can do. And he goes through the motions and and makes a profession of faith. And then even publicly becomes baptized. But you have to ask yourself, did Simon come to Jesus because he wanted Jesus or because he wanted all of the benefits that he saw Philip doing, and he was amazed by them. Ask yourself this morning, what's more important to me? Is it Jesus or the things that Jesus uh, can do for me? I want to be real clear here because, you know, we can, people do come to faith oftentimes when they're in a trial, when they're in a struggle, they, they become desperate and they, they turn to God out of that desperation. And they need God to, to take away maybe some struggle that they have or, or something um, that's going on in their life. But, but the reason ultimately that we come to God, while God might use that, that means, that, that thing that's going on to, to get our attention, ultimately the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ says, sees that the problem is not just what is going on in my life. The problem is my vertical relationship with God. That I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And so while the struggles might get our attention, or even some people might see the joy that a Christian has and say, wow, I want that. The real believer moves beyond that and says, I want to know God. I don't want to just show up in church and be happy. I don't want just good things to happen in my life. I want to know God. So often, too, today, sometimes people uh, will preach the gospel in such a way 
that we talk about the side benefits that Jesus can do, and we never talk about the sin that we need to be liberated from. So people will talk about, well, is your life a mess? Jesus can put it back together. That is very true. Jesus can heal us and put our lives back together in ways we can't even imagine. But the bigger problem is my sin. Do I come to Jesus because of the benefits I want from him? I want things to go well with my work. I want things to go well with my family. I want to have a good life. I want things to be smooth. I want healing from some sort of illness. Or do we come to Jesus because we say, I need a Savior? Another way to ask this question of yourself is this. Would knowing Jesus still be enough if there was something in my life that God never fixed? So if you were always struggling till the day you die with your finances, would you be okay with that if you could say, but I know Jesus If your career never takes off or you're always struggling to find work and you're you're going from paycheck to paycheck, would you be okay with that? Would you be content in saying, but I know Jesus and he's taking care of me moment by moment? Or do you have this expectation of, well, gee, if Jesus is real and he's going to provide for all my needs, it better be smooth sailing the whole way. If your relationships in some way were never healed, would Jesus still be enough? If your health never turns around or some prayer that you're praying is never answered precisely the way that you want, could you surrender yourself in such a way that says Jesus is enough And God, as I pray these things, not my will, but yours. You see, I think Simon found Jesus appealing because Jesus amazed him. Simon was used to being the big guy on the street. Look at the crowds that flock to me. Look at how great I am. And suddenly everybody is getting amazed by what Philip is doing and saying. And Simon begins to go, you know, I want what that guy has. I want people to be amazed in me because I am with Philip. Simon doesn't really come to know the Lord. And we're going to go through this even farther. That brings us to the second test this morning. Do I want the power of God for my own benefit? The disciples come then and they bring the Holy Spirit. So look at verses 14, 15. Uh, down through 17. Now the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for they had fallen, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I need to make a little side note here about what is going on in the book of Acts. Why is it that they had to come down and lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit? We don't, in in our time, and now that the New Testament is completed, we don't need someone to lay hands on us to get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not some sort of second blessing that comes after you're a believer, after you're baptized. But what is going on here in the book of Acts is so that the people of God might know that the gospel is being spread 
in truth to other nations, to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles. God sends the Holy Spirit in, in phases, if you will. Remember how in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, after the disciples are there, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin to speak in tongues and they begin to do miracles. And that is a unique event. That is not something that we should expect to happen over and over again in our day and age. So why is it then that, that as they go to the Samaritans, the disciples have to take the Holy Spirit there? It's so that the rest of the church might know that God is really saving these people. It's so that there would be a visible testimony. You, you have to remember that the Jewish people are used to who's, who primarily gets saved all the time in the Old Testament. It's Jews. God's plan has always been to take the gospel to the nations. But, but how are people going to know that, that this is God's plan now? There needs to be this sort of first steps where, where the disciples, the apostles visibly take the Holy Spirit down there. This is sort of like a, a second Pentecost for the Samaritans. So that, so that the disciples will know what happened in Acts 2 is really happening now to Samaritans. They're getting saved, and then it happens again later with the Gentiles. But by the time that Paul begins his missionary journeys and, and then is later writing to the churches, he makes it clear that every believer gets the Holy Spirit when they're in Jesus, not a second blessing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 says this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth of the gospel of salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise and the glory of God. And Ephesians chapter 2, 18, For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ gets the Holy Spirit. He comes into our life. He seals us at the moment we believe. But in this early church setting, so that people would recognize that there were genuine salvations going on, the disciples had to visibly bring the Holy Spirit and lay hands. But Simon sees this. And Simon says, I want that power. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of hand, the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Also, give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. Simon wants the position. Simon wants the power. Simon is saying, I was a big-time magician before I was a Christian. Look how popular I was. And then he says to, to Peter and John, I'll pay you money. Give this to me. Perhaps he's thinking, give this to me so I can be popular again. Give this to me so that I can have this power. Maybe he even is, is trying to pretend to himself that he has good motives. God, think of what I could do for you if I had this power. I used to really be able to draw crowds when, when I was a pagan, when I was doing my magic through demons. Imagine how much I could do for you now. 
sort of selfish motives that I want to show off and I will pay you whatever it takes to become big time for the kingdom of God so that I can be somebody. Peter rebukes Simon. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. This is reason number one. I don't think Simon was really saved. Your heart was not right with God. You don't have part or whole in any of this. Reason number two, I don't think he was saved. Peter says, repent therefore of your wickedness and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Now there are times when a Christian needs to repent and be called to repent but I think with everything that is going on here Peter is not just saying you know well you're a Christian and, and just get right again with God. He's saying you're not a believer. Repent and turn to Jesus. And then, then reason number three is he says, for I've seen that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He is not a believer. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, it warns about people that might turn away and go and follow other gods. Uh, and it says, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That people can be in the church, in the people of God, they can look like a Christian, they can act like a Christian, and yet they can turn away not being a genuine Christian. Deuteronomy chapter 32, 32 speaks of of, um, the unbeliever as one who their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters are bitter. This same sort of idea, a gall of bitterness. Isaiah uh, chapter 58 uh, talks about uh, a bond of iniquity. They are enslaved to sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This is a warning to us. Check your heart. Simon said, I believe in Jesus. Simon said, I'm being baptized, or Simon didn't say, he was baptized. Everybody thought he was a believer, and then he says, let me buy the Holy Spirit. And it's like suddenly a light went on, and what was truly inside of his heart was exposed to everyone else. Here's the question for you. Am I going through the motions of the Christian faith? Or am I a genuine believer? It is very possible that everyone here today looks like a good Christian. That we could look around the room and say, well, of course they're a Christian. Well, yeah, they're here. Well, look at how nice they're dressed. They must be a Christian. Or they're here every Sunday. They must be a Christian. Or or I saw them put put a tithe check in the offering. They really must be a Christian. And yet, in your heart, you aren't a believer. 
Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe these are the things that you've always heard, but you've never made a real profession of faith. Maybe you hang around the church because you want the good morals. You want the good people. You bring your kids to church because, well, that's what you do. That's how people become good. You need to know the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins. And be really careful because the parable of the sower warns us that it is possible to begin and make a profession of faith and and go through the motions. And then as the cares of the world begin to come, our, our focus gets distracted. Simon started in a good way. He made a profession of faith. Simon started in a good way. He he was baptized. And then all of a sudden he saw how popular you could be if you have the Holy Spirit. And his attitude all in this moment is suddenly exposed. He doesn't really know what Jesus has done. Hebrews gives this warning. Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It is possible for the for a spirit of bitterness to creep up in our heart. An attitude of, I want something. And it can subtly lead me away from the Lord Jesus Christ and expose that there wasn't genuine faith there in the beginning. And if you are hearing this warning, continue to turn to Jesus, not away from Him. Third this morning, third test. Am I genuinely repentant or just afraid of the consequences? Some of you that have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews knows how this works, right? When your kids are more afraid of getting caught than they are of actually disobeying. I think this is how Simon is. Look at what Simon says in verse 24. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, commentators are a little bit divided here. Is Simon genuinely repenting? I think the answer is no. And here here are my three reasons. Number one, Peter told Simon to repent. And then Simon says, pray for me. Simon doesn't actually do what Peter told him to do. I don't think he was genuine here. Second, asking someone to pray for you is not a good precedent in Scripture. In other words, what Simon should have done is he should have prayed. Oh my gosh, I am a sinner. What was I thinking? Why am I doing this? This is horrible. I'm making a mockery of the power of God. I repent. And Simon says, well, Peter, and and maybe he said it very sincerely, Peter, just pray for me, Peter. 
but he didn't understand that he could pray and repent for himself. One of the great examples of this is in uh, the book of Exodus again. Pharaoh and Moses, numerous times, Pharaoh tells Moses and Aaron, you know, the, the, the plague comes, right? And, and Pharaoh is supposed to repent. He's supposed to change his, his mind about God and turn back and say, okay, I'll be obedient. I'll let the people go. And, and what is, what does Pharaoh say? He says on several occasions, Acts 8, or Exodus 8, 8, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs for me and from my people, and I will let the people go and sacrifice the Lord. Uh, and it happens several times, Acts 9.28, plead with the Lord, or excuse me, Exodus 9.28, plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And we all know what happened is, is as soon as the plague was gone, as soon as the hail or the frogs or whatever it was gone, Pharaoh said, oh, forget it, you can, you're, you're staying, I'm not letting you go. But it was always this, Moses, Aaron, Pray to God for me, and then I'll do what God wants. I think this is sort of what Simon is doing. Uh, pr- pray to God for me. I, I'm so sorry. But he's not repentant. This is the third reason I don't think Simon's, uh was, was really had a, a conversion here, is that you can be sorrowful and not be genuinely repentant. And you need to ask yourself in your own heart as we read those verses, am I merely sorrowful? I don't want to go to hell and I'm sorry for what I did. Or am I really repentant that I know the punishment is right, that I know these things are things that I deserve? And I'm not just saying, God, get me out of this. I'm turning and believing in who he is. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But if I but if ever I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though for a little while. By the way, the background is he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 1. They're obviously very grieved, very sad. He had exposed some of their sins, and now he's writing 2 Corinthians, and he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not happy that I made you sad, but I'm happy that because you were sad, you actually repented. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss throughout us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See that what earnestness this godly grief produces in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. Scripture doesn't tell us very much about what Simon is feeling, but it does say what he says. And he says to Peter, pray for me. And I think what Simon has in this moment is this worldly grief. This, I got my hands smacked. I got caught with my fingers in the cookie jar and I'm upset about it. But it doesn't turn him to repent. Are you here in the church today because you have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of your sins? This this 
godly grief and sorrow that leads you saying, I have nothing but to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. I really am a sinner. But Jesus is a great Savior. Or are you here because you're just afraid of the consequences? This sort of worldly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance. Godly grief leads to the fruit that comes in salvation and and obedience that, that flows from the work that God is doing in us. Worldly grief leads to this attitudes that we see in Simon. This sort of, I'm here and wouldn't it be great if I could do great things? Do you have a godly grief or a worldly grief. Let me close with this. There are two kinds of people here today. More than two kinds, but for the sake of the analogy, two kinds. And how does God use warnings? Imagine yourself, you're driving in a car, you're driving towards a windy road, and there is two kinds of drivers. There is the good driver, the cautious driver, And there is the cocky driver. And I'll let you figure out which one you are. I don't know. But for the sake of the analogy, you are driving and this is downward hill and there's this really sharp corner. And if you don't make the corner, there's this cliff. And you see the sign. And the sign says, slow, caution, turn, cliff ahead, whatever. The cautious driver says, all right, I'm going to put on the brakes a little bit here. That's a scary thing to see a cliff. I don't want to go over the edge. And they respond and they just kind of go normally through the curve. Maybe some of you are here and, and you're sort of in that, that maybe even I've, I've encountered people and met people that are, that are so sensitive in their sin, for, for their sins, that the minute, the minute, God, the minute that they hear a, a sermon like this, they, 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 they become anxious and, and panicky and Oh my gosh, maybe I'm not really saved. I remember being like that one time, and it was when my grandfather died. I knew that I was a Christian when he died. But when he died, I had this sort of moment of, it it was, for me, it was like the first time death really was real. Like someone close to me I knew that actually died. I had this fear that I couldn't explain because on the one hand, I, I remember talking to my dad and saying, I, I know I'm a Christian. I believe these things, but but it was sobering. It it was scary. It was like it was like seeing that cliff approach and going, this thing is real. And and out of that, I prayed and I ended up rededicating my life. And God used it for some amazing things. But but you see the warning and you slow down and you heed it. And and let me say to you, don't be in a panic like the pastor is saying. Oh, maybe I'm not really saved. If if you are feeling this and you're 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 pushing on the brakes and saying i want to be i want to just i'm sure i'm a believer but i want to take it seriously this is a good way that a warning works for you 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 continue to turn to god then there is the other driver the confident driver dare we say the cocky driver He's maybe going a little excessive as he speeds towards this corner. And, and he sees the warning sign and he says, that warning sign really isn't for me. I've got this. 
Uh, did you ever take like a turn on an exit ramp and it says like 35 miles an hour and you're, you're like, my car's a little faster. I could, I could do it at 45. I could do it at 65. I've maybe perhaps done that with my car once or twice. And then you go and I drive my wife's minivan and I forget I'm driving the minivan. And so I don't slow down quite as much because I'm used to the car. And suddenly you get into the corner and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm taking this too fast. Maybe that's where you are in your Christian walk. Maybe a little bit cocky. A little bit, I've heard all these sermons before. Of course I'm a believer. And rather than slowing down and and just taking a look and saying, yeah, you know, I really do believe in Jesus and I really do trust him and I want to keep a short account with him and I want to make sure I'm repenting. You're just sort of like, ah, this sermon's for somebody else. I've got this. That is precisely the person that needs to heed the warning. See, the warnings are there as a good thing. Not to scare us, but to make us alert. Scripture warns each and every believer, be certain that you're a believer. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. But then also in Hebrews, be sure that you continue in the faith. Don't let sins begin to creep up like weeds in the garden. Keep a short account with God. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word today. That we would delight ourselves in you. That we would heed the warnings that you have for us. That we would examine ourselves. Did I... Did I just go through the motions of believing or through the motions of my baptism or through the motions of of being here? Or have you genuinely changed my heart? Do I have a genuine repentance, a concern about my my relationship with you, a heavenly God who, who cannot tolerate sin and unholiness? And maybe some of us, we are saved, but, but we just need to regather that focus again. Remind ourselves of what is most important in our salvation, that, that the seeds of bitterness, that the, that the root of, of sin might not sprout up and grow and choke out the faith that we once professed. Speak to us through your word. In your precious name we pray. Amen.